There you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero and hosted by the Heroes Media Group. This is a very special, well, I guess they're all special, actually. Jeanette Arancibia, promoted Navy commander. She is doing some phenomenal things. She was uh, deployed to Afghanistan. Her route to the United States Navy was a little bit different from most people's service records. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation that I had today. And thank you for listening to another episode. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset, for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. This particular guest excites the heck out of me because she's involved in a lot of really cool things at a real high level. She's Navy Lieutenant Commander Jeanette M. Arancibia. She is a global health specialist. And for those of you who know, we, we're always talking about mental health and I can't wait to hear what she has to say. She is a plans, operations, and medical intelligence officer. And right now, she's with Marine Forces Central Command. Jeanette is a 1988 graduate of Mercer County High School in Harrodsburg, Kentucky. So she's a bluegrass um, person, and uh, we love Kentucky. She graduated from Eastern Kentucky University in 1995. And in 1996, from the EKU MPA program, where she was a Patricia Roberts Harris Fellow and Presidential Internship Management Candidate. We'll hear more about that as we get uh, into this discussion. Uh, She is a graduate of the U.S. Navy War College, where she earned a Master's in National Security and Strategic Studies. So as you you know, she operates at a real high level. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Aaron Sebia is, as well, a graduate of the Marine Corps Command and Staff. Marine Corps University and is currently enrolled in the Uniformed Services University Global Health Engagement Program. There's a lot more about her that we haven't heard yet, and I know we'll hear more. So welcome, Lieutenant Commander. Thank you. I have some uh, great news that since I've submitted that, I've put on Commander. So we're continuing to climb this uh, this ladder. Wow, that's awesome. Congratulations to you. And uh, now we, we have to put this out on a New Year's episode to make it really special. Still serving our great United States of America and recently promoted to commander. So congratulations. Thank you. Well, you know, we had a little discussion off, uh, I guess, off radio, if you will, a little bit about your father and some of the things that uh, he taught you at a very young age. I know you appreciate your father and he's in your heart and I know it's his birthday this month. Tell us a little bit about your household in Kentucky and, you know, what it was like growing up in Kentucky? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start with, uh, I was actually born in Columbus, Ohio. I'm the eldest of five children. Uh, they're all boys after me, and we're all about a year apart, so that made me an, a natural commander, and now I just get paid for it. Uh, <laughs> I love we it. In, we lived in uh, Columbus, Ohio for approximately four years and then moved to upstate New York, where I grew up in a small town up until I was about 14 in Sydney, New York. So uh, my formative years, um, I would say, would be in the Catskill Mountains. So um, Dad was a machinist and a uh, ham radio operator. He participated in um, volunteer organizations such as MARS, which is the uh, military version for civilians of ham radio operators that coordinate messages uh, throughout the world. So at the time, as a young lady, I listened to my father do phone patches for military members who were overseas. Um, And he was able to do that up until about the time that he interrupted the frequencies at church. We were sitting in church. My mother had the the five of us there, and um, he interrupted the uh, pastor's sermon with WB2AZW and uh, CQ, CQ, CQ. So my mother put a cease to that. Dad started going to church with us. He accepted uh, Christ and began to go to church with us and was no longer on the radio when the preacher was talking. Thank you, Mom. (laughs) That's a great story. You know, sometimes we have to reset our priorities, and uh, (laughs) Christ is definitely a good one. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So we stayed in upstate New York until my father was assigned to, to some churches in Pennsylvania where we lived for three years. So we were, we were living in a small town called Pleasant Mount, where he had two other small churches, Orson and uh, White's Valley. So for about three years of my life, 14, 15, and 16, we were traveling. We were going to church three, three times on Sunday. And uh, I was dad's aqualite for each one of those services. So any church service my father may have missed, we certainly made up for it in those three years. Oh, that's great. So, my father was very influential without even realizing it. He put me to task on I was the one responsible for uh, doing the bulletins and printing the bulletins. And before I went anywhere on the weekend, I needed to go out and, and put up whatever the saying was going to be in the marquee. Though tempted many times to say my father made me do this and find some equity with uh, church and faith with that, I never did it. Um, I had a healthy respect for my father. He was very authoritarian. Of course, I being uh, uh, the oldest girl, uh, tested a lot of those boundaries, and so my father was a very good disciplinarian. Uh, we lived in Pennsylvania until my father was accepted at Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, and that is, in fact, what took us to Kentucky at about the age of 16. At the time, he um, went to school full-time and, and had five kids, and uh, I can tell you this, that any good man, as we know, is backed by a great woman, and, and my mother was just that. My mother stayed home all of her life and, and helped raise us five kids, and so we, I'm happy to say, are very, very blessed with the exception of my father's passing within the last five to six years of Bulber ALS, but I can tell you this, that uh, much of my family, uh, three of my I, four brothers are still in the uh, Kentucky area, Wilmore specifically, and uh, I have one other brother who's currently serving in the Army. A total of three of us have served. Uh, my youngest brother, John Workman, who is currently in Paducah, Kentucky, and puts a lot of volunteer time in, uh, in addition to his responsibilities as, uh, as a corporate uh, manager of Papa John's. Um, we are very blessed to have experienced grand success uh, in all of our lives. That's an awesome story, you know, and thank you very much for, you know, identifying your mom as, you know, a major backbone of your family, because, you know, a lot of times uh, the ladies that stay home to raise the kids as great as you guys and gals that, that, you know, they get overlooked sometimes. And there is that part of the family nucleus that deserves a lot of credit. And uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great tribute to your mother for you to point that out. You know, so you, your journey to the Navy wasn't your typical journey, but did you have anybody in your family background? And thank you for the service of your brothers. Anybody in your family background that had served, you know, in uniform for the U.S.? So absolutely. Um, the one I feel like a couple that made a notable impression on me would be uh, I have a cousin, Paul Merrick, who is the son of William Merrick. Uh, Paul Merrick served in the Navy and then William Merrick served in the Navy as well. That's my uncle. So my mother's brother and sister. So Dolores uh, Merrick, she served in during the Korean War. They, they were very influential. I remember seeing many, many pictures of, of them. And then I have numerous other family members that were first in degree, second, first degree, second degree separation from service or from family, second cousins and so on and so forth. So uh, that includes um, uh, Drapper Kaufman, who uh, those that are listening understand Drapper Kaufman was the first frogman. And frogmen, as you know, were the uh, start of the Navy Navy SEALs. So right. a lot of pride goes into that. On my father's side, mostly Army. So I had the influence of the Army and the Navy. Um, no, no Coasties, no, no Airmen. Uh, just really the old uh, Army Navy, which is uh, a fun rivalry. I'll not go into that. It's a little hurt for right now. Too soon. Yeah. Too soon. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. I, but it's I'm the Navy and uh, and the Army game last couple of years. Uh, my brother gives me a hard time about that. So, but you know, the Navy owned us for a long time. So you know, yes. you got to give us a few of these, please. Yes. Yes, yes, so, yes. Got to do that. So we're done with that. Uh, you have any other questions? Uh, no, but yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> but uh, I feel your pain. I really do. So, you know, I said I mentioned and you had told me earlier that your your pathway to the United States Navy was different from most people. And can you explain that? You know, tell us what you mean by that. 
I once I had my master's degree in public administration, I had notions of uh, going and passing legislation that would exempt any effort to keep health and PE out of our public school systems. I'm big on health. I'm big on uh, prom uh, the promotion of wellness and, and disease prevention. And uh, my bachelor's degree, I actually um, taught for a year and uh, I became a, a little bothered by the fact that we've got public school systems that wish to take physical activity and health education out and oh. replace it within a sundry of other uh, learning requirements. So therefore, I went back and that's the Patricia Roberts Harris fellow. I do want to mention that uh, if it were not for Eastern Kentucky University's Patricia Roberts, Har Patricia Roberts Harris grant, I don't know that I would have gotten my master's and been able to have a career in the Navy. So I'm forever thankful for that opportunity. Opportunity, Patricia Roberts Harris grant is specifically for minorities, in particular females, that that um, show some promising signs to get into government and legislation. So, so with my master's degree, I left and I. Um, I worked for a while in, in the Atlanta area. I started a small consultation uh, company, worked with rural hospitals, got a couple of uh, community newsletters started that promoted wellness and brought people to the hospital for, for wellness programs. I did that up until the Georgia Hospital Association found me and said, hey, we do that. Why don't you come join our team? So I did that for a bit. Then I started one of the first uh, provider-sponsored healthcare corporations with Lewis Smith out of uh, Dalton, Georgia, called Health One Alliance. Um, we had about 100,000 covered lives with the local carpet mill industry there. It was a great, great ride. I enjoyed getting out, meeting with HR representatives, talking with employees about the importance of disease prevention, and all in the name of really kind of keeping healthcare costs down for the employers who had self-funded programs. I enjoy that very much. Um, I did very, very well with it. And uh, I settled down, had a family. I have two girls, lovely girls, um, Aspen Jewel and Autumn Janae. Decided that, uh, that that's where I wanted to settle down, I thought. So, so there I was as a, as a professional in the health insurance field, making a life for myself as we, as we all enjoyed until that day. Uh, on 9-11 when I noted that the employees that worked for me did not feel safe. Uh, we did not know what happened, as you recall, and I don't think we need to relive it, having recently memorialized that on 9-11 on like we do every year. However, I will tell you that I was so struck by the fact that I was responsible for people who didn't feel safe to even walk outside and go home. That made an impression on me. And, yeah, um, definitely was a, was a scary moment for a lot of us. Like you said, we don't really want to rehash it. So, you know, so you're you're in service to others. This tragic event ha happens that the whole world saw and then us as Americans. So I know I can tell already I, I can see you here. Everybody else can't see you. But that analytical mind starts to work. Right. right. And and so we're thinking service to others, health care, safety, mindset, U.S. Navy, kind of how right. it went. Right. Absolutely. Actually, actually, it was Marine Corps. I decided I, I'm going to go and be a Marine and I'm going to I'm going to defend our country because I don't want anyone to feel like this is not a safe place to be. I was I, I say a lot of times when I'm very passionate about something, you know, it it really burned the embers and and fueled a desire to go do that. So, you know, I went to the Marine Corps and and I submitted my paperwork and I said, you know, I want to be a Marine and they said, "Well, ma'am, we, we would like for you to, however, you're you've got a medical background, so uh we're going to send you over to the Navy." And so, uh, I submitted a, a packet based on a conversation that I had with a recruiter who was not a medical recruiter. He said, "You know, I've never done this, so we're going to submit and see what we get back." About two weeks later, I received a phone call that said, um, we would like to commission you. We're going to give you a direct commission. And, and at the time, I did not have a full appreciation for even what a commission was. I just knew the Navy was saying yes, but I didn't fully grasp what they were telling me. And at that What's time... That, is that Rankin Ensign right off the bat? Is that uh, what... it's, it's actually a Lieutenant JG off the bat. So they gave me okay. four years service credit and, and commissioned me a Lieutenant JG. Nice. Okay. So, so this gets, okay. This gets fun because I 
I need, I knew I needed help at the time I had both of my girls. Um, at the time I was married, uh, he had decided to go back into the Marine Corps, uh, which I applaud because he had been through Somalia, um, and we all know what a tough time those folks had. Um, probably some of your listeners have unfortunately had some of those experiences. So, so he had decided to go back in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps accepted him. He left. I was left behind. My mother uh, said, I'm going to come and help you. So after spending all of her life raising five kids, she dedicated 12 years of her life with me, helping me with my girls uh, when at the time uh, their dad wasn't there to help out. So I got to say that my mother never really served with a uniform on, but I'll submit to you, she served more than any of us have ever served. God so, bless her. Uh, you know, that's like you said at the outset, you know, that's why you recognize that. And that's why it's part of your own character. And, you know, to have a parent like that is a thing to be very grateful for. Oh, so, absolutely. So hey, thank mom. You. <laughs> Yes, thank you for that acknowledgement. So I left, uh, went to training up in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, my mother sold my home the day I graduated from my my training, what most people would refer to as their basic training. So from Newport, Rhode Island, in the middle of the winter, where literally <laughs> uh, the cold reaches down into your lungs, pulls it inside out, I left and went out to San Diego. My first duty station was the Navy School of Health Sciences out there where we train IDCs, so independent duty corpsmen. That's a heck of a change, you know, from frigid cold weather to San Diego. And if you haven't been to San Diego, it does have some of the finest weather on the face of the planet. So, wow, what a duty station. That's pretty cool. I did, yes. It, and it was a great experience out there. I was out there for uh, two years. I worked under uh, for uh, Captain William T. Nunns was my first commanding officer. And then I worked under uh, Captain Robin McKenzie. In addition to those two leaders, I worked for a very notable, so many innumerable great senior enlisted that really taught me my left right lateral limits because i will tell you i was a lieutenant jg full of piss and vinegar and i was gonna find osama bin laden myself if it killed me and <laughs> we, we met some of those guys and yeah if you're one of those i'm, I'm glad you're on that side you know <laughs> just saying so, so I don't know how I thought I was going to do it, but from a training command, I was going to find this guy myself, you know? And so I had a personal drive yeah. to put my own boots on the ground over there. And, uh, I you know, but, but real quick, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, I always remember the West Point officers coming and I was just a sergeant. I was an E5 and I remember you could see the ones that you knew were going to make it. And then there were some that were going to have a harder time. And uh, thank you for pointing that out, because a good NCO is definitely worth their salt. And I had good senior NCOs, females and males, that helped me as a young buck sergeant tread the water. So that's a good point you, you made. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So I'll give all the credit to most of it to the Chiefs Mess at NH NSHS San Diego, notably uh, Master Chief Jeffrey Travers, now retired, and I think he even plays Santa. But I was personally, <laughs> I was personally assigned to him. And if I can just quick share a story, that would be kind of funny for those folks who have any familiarity with the Navy. So a couple of things that I did was when I was assigned to NSHS, I was told, uh, go around the schoolhouse, look for opportunities there are to make more class space. So I got this, you know. So as I'm going around, I noted that there was a room in particular that seemed to have quite a few couches and a coffee maker and so I wrote up my report and I submitted my report and about two days later I was called to Master Chief Travers office which I had been to numerous times and he said uh, I read your report here I said he said uh, it was given to me by the XO he said I noted that uh, you suggested the chief's mess as a classroom space so that there was a uh, there was some learning occurring uh, on almost a monthly basis with me, and I will tell you that I'm in touch with those people uh, to this day, uh, senior retired Senior Chief Edward Ocasio, um, 
HM1 Fox, who now is a great DJ down in in uh, uh, the Keys, who I've been to see, very successful. So these are th- this was the first of my family, and they're the ones who really influenced me when it comes to hey, the Navy does it this way and get it right. But I think what they liked about me was that I remember seeing some folks. Out front of out in front of the schoolhouse, and they were getting in formation, and they were singing cadences, and they were getting in shape. And so I asked Master Chief Travis, I said, I said, Master Chief, is there any way I can get out there and PT in the morning? He goes, Again, Lieutenant JG Aaron Sebia, that is for the Chiefs. That is great. That is a great story. But you know what's cool about that? And for those long uh, young Lieutenant JGs out there, or any officer in any branch. They're senior NCOs. You might think that you're, and you are, they're, 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 but it's because they care about you. And yes. what's interesting is, is that when you can understand that, and it's hard when you're young and full of, like you so eloquently put, piss and vinegar, <laughs> when you're, it's sometimes hard to see that. But those yes. NCOs that care about those officers because they sell something in you, and look, look how much that helped you. And, and gosh, it gives me goosebumps, you know, to think, you know, now you're taking me back to some of my NCOs that were like, anyhow, it's all good. So th- thank you for sharing that. So we're getting a lot out of this, aren't we? Oh, yeah. And I, I'm hopeful that at a time and place, some of the people that really deserve the credit for, for where I am today uh, have an opportunity to hear this because they're phenomenal people to this day. I, I had my master chief uh, call me, gosh, I think it was about four or five years ago. And he said, hey, Take your phone number down off your Facebook. That's not good. So they still are very, they're still very influential. And and I absolutely appreciate that. Truly, they are my family. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, it just takes you back. And, uh, you know, it's great because and this, you also point out another thing about the military, if you haven't, you know, but if you've ever been in an organization, it's an organization that truly cares. And the only way you can accomplish the mission is if you have people like this. And, you know, like I said, it doesn't matter the branch. It's amazing how these organizations, these military organizations can take you in, whether you're, you know, enlisted or officer, they can break you down, which they can do. And then they build you up in a way that makes you better for it, but also allows those teams to accomplish missions in some pretty chaotic environments, which we'll get to about your first deployment, what that was all about. But, you know, th- th- that's what I anyhow, that's th- that's the whole thing about the military is that they they're on mission. They have great people and especially United States of America. That's a rare individual that does what we do. Yes, it is. And, and you know, I got to tell you that you're right when when you uh, referenced that they saw something in me, I think that it was it was endearing on their parts because the day that I received orders now, it was during a VTC. And basically we were talking with uh, with D.C. and D.C. was saying, hey, you know, they're reaching down into our training commands asking for individual augmentees. And I told, you know, my chain of command, I will go. I will go. And so it wasn't maybe a month after that, that a senior chief came to my office and brought for me. Now they took the trouble to print it out on pink paper. (laughs) You got to love those guys. They had my orders. And, and I remember being told, ma'am, we don't know what to tell you other than you are going to, to Afghanistan and you have three months of combat training. So whatever you need, you let us know. And we'll help you out. The uniqueness of that, and for for those listening, you know, the Army and the Army National Guard have done an excellent job in carrying the weight of the war that's lasted 17 years. We know this, right? So, but they didn't do it without the help of the other services. Our Air Force, our Navy, our Coast Guard, in fact, everybody has been a part of this effort. And, And I was no exception. So I was assigned an individual augmentee to the 41st BCT uh, out of Oregon, and I was uh, really it, it wasn't it wasn't anything that the Navy had quite down yet because the Army was still trying to figure out how to coordinate with the other services when it comes to personnel assignment. So in short, I reported to Camp Shelby, Mississippi. I was one of two active duty; the rest were reservists nine of them, and we came together and and formed a unit. And we were told as Navy individual augmentees, look, 
We do training here at Camp Shelby. We have a horse blanket training. Fall in. Now, you say horse blanket to somebody from Kentucky that's in the Navy, and you're thinking, okay, uh, where do I find a horse blanket, and what's that all about? Well, subsequently, we learned that it's a colored chart that tells you exactly where to be and at what time for the training. So um, as the reservists and I got to know ourselves and the other active duty corpsman that was with me, we grew to understand uh, the appreciation, and I, I know they already had the active duty piece, but I the any stereotype associated with reservists went completely away to include the National Guard. Um, those people have it very difficult because they're balancing their families, they're balancing active duty when they're put on active duty, and then can you imagine the administrivia of getting all the benefits going before you leave on top of packing those sea bags? So I, I really, if, as, as we have reservists and National Guardsmen listening, I got to tell you, my respect and hats off to you because I had the privilege to serve with reservists and it, it, it makes, makes a great team. Well, it's definitely something that I'm glad you pointed out because, you know, we don't, we do, sometimes we do undervalue the reservists or those that don't do it full time. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, group effort. And again, the epitome of all the different services coming to, that is what group effort is all about. Um, I, I can remember, you know, we always had jokes about the Navy and I could never understand why our drill sergeant used to just get bent out of shape and he used to go, gentlemen. We have the world's finest Navy. They live their lives in 3D. And it's like, what is that? Another day, another dollar, another dirty shirt, just like you guys. Now drop and give me 50. And we never made fun of the Navy, that whole rotation. And, and we do have the world's finest Navy. We do. Yes, we do. Thank you for that. Yes, we absolutely do. Forward from the sea and, and all other slogans all apply. So uh, <laughs> there's not a T-shirt that fits all of them. So, um so off to uh, training, uh, trained on every weapon, absolutely loved it. I mean, there's nothing better than a butterfly clip on a Mark 19 that gives something, <laughs> an element of fun to the day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I fired 50 cal, I fired Mark 19. Do have a real quick funny story. You know, when they handed <laughs> me the 203, they said, well, we're going to go out here and qual with a 203. And I said, great. And, you know, if the, for those of us that have fired a 203, you understand that it doesn't sound all that intimidating, kind of like a styrofoam gun. So <laughs> yeah. I, that's right. As I as I put the weapon up and I'm trying to find now where is it I'm shooting, I fire it. I had underestimated the recoil just, you know, for the sound listening and busted out my my front tooth. Now, if you're a girl from Kentucky, you cannot have your front teeth missing. <laughs> no, you can't. So when I when I uh, had that happen, um, tears started to roll, not because of the pain, but because, oh, gosh, there go my front teeth. And I remember my corpsman, who was the only other active duty out there in the Navy with me, I said, I, I, you know, he goes, you all right? I said, I'm bleeding. You know, a piece of my tooth had fallen on the ground. He said, ma'am, he said, get up there and qual. We'll get you to the dentist after this. <laughs> and you know what? You're so right. You would like fit every stereotype of hillbilly ladies in the state of Kentucky. No slight to them. But uh, <laughs> I'm glad you got it fixed because they look good now. So you're good. <laughs> Thanks. That's Thanks so much. Shay, thanks to an Army dentist at Camp Shelby who showed me a little love there. So, awesome. so off to uh, Kuwait, uh, we went to convoy training. And then now for those listening that understand, again, the administrivia that goes into actually arriving in theater at a certain time and place, my boots hit the ground in Afghanistan on September 11th of 2005 wow. on September 11th at Camp Phoenix. Well, Bagram, really. But uh, so I got there and they said, well, what do you do in the Navy? Well, I explained, hey, I'm a medical planner, plans, operations and medical intelligence, as you cited in the introduction. And they said, OK, great. We're going to make you the chief of the Joint Visitors Bureau. Now, I'm in the Navy and I know well enough. I've already been schooled. I am not a chief as, as much as I would like to be. But, you know, the Navy, I mean, the Army nomenclature is different. So chief is actually a really good thing. And you want to be the chief, right? Yeah, so absolutely. I was trying to convince these folks, hey, look, you got it wrong. I can't do this, you know. So once I understood and appreciated that they were giving me a job with, with a heightened level of responsibility and what I would learn would be exclusive opportunities that very uh, few other people get, um, it, you know, it's a little 
little learning curve for me, but I got it. I got it. You know what's so, cool? You know what's cool about all this so far as the story progresses is how <laughs> you just keep getting schooled all the time. But your attitude is like you just you, you embrace it. Which is really kind of cool. I don't think I've ever met anybody quite like you. You know, all these things coming at you, but that's really cool. So what did you see there in Afghanistan and and, and what kept you going? Oh, well, I'll tell you, what kept me going was somebody said, hey, do you do you take pictures? Are you a photographer? And I'm thinking in the back of my head, well, aren't we all? And they said, okay, great. And the next day, I'm handed this Nikon D80 with these lenses that, oh my gosh, they're so, I'm, I've never shot with one of these cameras before. And then I'm assigned to a public affairs company that, you know, now Tom Roberts, who I'm still in touch with, a very, very dear friend of mine, the Tangan, so Cat and Perry Tangan. Um, I, I was assigned with them to to do um, Joint Visitors Bureau responsibilities, which uh, many of you may understand that that means any congressional delegation that's coming to theater to see their forces, in particular those associated with the National Guard, they want to. There's some that want to go and visit and be briefed and in a conference room and leave, and there are some that where are my people staying? I don't care if it's under a rock. I want to go see them. So. So I had the opportunity, a very unique opportunity, to take a camera and do things and capture experiences that very few people would ever have the opportunity to do. And I was doing that under the premise of a public affairs joint visitors bureau professional and um, officer, and it was invaluable. So what did I see? Well, I saw the back of a camera and tears would stream down my eyes with some of the things I saw. I was affected both positively. I would say even the negative experiences were positive. It took me a little while to appreciate that. Um, but I think uh, some of the, if you, if you asked what was most impressionable, we planned a lot of um, uh, medical missions and so I oftentimes would go out and capture us uh, actually being a part of providing medical care, which it, when you hand someone a pair of glasses and they haven't seen all their lives and now they can see, you, you ought to be uh, experiencing goosebumps because that changes a life, you know, and yeah, even, one, even one. So those were the positive experiences. Um, the negative experiences, you know, were, and I, I was just going through a tub of things the other night, being away from family, that, that was tough. And I think for me, especially as a mother, though, I will not take away that every one of us that deploys, whether you're a mother or a father, it, it's just tough. It's tough. And, you know, we're expected to go in theater and, and do a really hard job. And, you know, there are opportunities depending on the lens with which you view this to be a parent to a child in another country of just for a moment. So I got, I, I experienced great joy in, you know, while maybe the, the 82nd Airborne or Mountain Division was doing what they needed to do, we got the kids out of the way and played, you know, tag with them or duck, duck, goose or, and, you know, it, it was real to me. I mean, it's so real when you're out there playing tag and you have to make sure you don't slide on the dead cow that's out there, you know, cause it was just slaughtered to go to eat or something to that effect. I mean, the experiences, the dichotomy really between peace and viewing a troubled society with so much hope um, that you get from the people that you're interfacing with on a daily basis. Uh, I don't know that there's any other experience in my life that, that will ever be able to replace that, that all at once you're experiencing the worst and the best of a society. Definitely, uh, definitely leaving indelible marks on you. You know, how did the Afghan people, um, how did they view us, the American forces or the allied forces? At the time, um, there was, uh, um, my experience is mostly positive. We made it out to schools. So we got to see female teachers teaching children in the schools. Uh, times I would be singing the ABCs to children, which they loved. Um, other times, I will tell you that there was some skepticism about whether we were going to make it back to camp that day. And that had much to do with just some of the looks and the eyes of the folks who they have such great passion. Uh, but sometimes I think they find it even difficult to trust. Right. So, so at times we would be out even with other agencies working with say 
the FDA on some agricultural products. And then we'd have, you know, you might have an Afghan pull us aside and say, do you want to see the killing tree? And the killing tree near Jalalabad, for those that don't know, is literally where they would take people, place them in front of the tree and and assassinate them. And so that tree was marred with bullet holes. And, you know, so we were there doing a good thing with the Afghans who wanted to further society and look at look at options for for agriculture. Um, yet I was being asked to take a look at this tree over here where they where they killed my brother. Well, thank so, you. know, thank you for pointing that out. And any time that, you know, if there's ever a killing tree in the U.S., you know, with as bad as things can get here. To think that you're in a society where a killing tree even exists and people in that community even know about it. I mean, the level of fear has got to be on be beyond anything I've ever experienced. And so having experienced that, it would leave you with the feeling never taking anything for granted ever. Right. Absolutely. There's not a day that goes by that I don't appreciate even the sun coming up. And I feel like most of our listeners feel the same way is just to, to appreciate that. And so, you know, I want to touch on a couple of very important points is that um, really, I, I enjoyed my experiences over there. But again, I'll cite the dichotomy. Um, there are experiences that I would have never had otherwise. So one of those being that, you know, our military every single service and the civilians that serve alongside us and the contractors, we do magic. We make it happen, you know? And one of the things that I was responsible for was I was told as well as my first Lieutenant Straub, um, we were told you're going to spend a couple of days working with this female platoon and they're going to, you need to teach them how to fire their AK 47s and get them ready for a uniform inspection. And so to that, I replied, might I fam fire an AK-47 myself? Because we we didn't we didn't have a lot of time on that back at Camp Shelby. Right. And so you just do it. You know, you just do it. And so I found myself out one day with First Lieutenant Straub, uh, now happily married with a family of her own, still in touch with her. Awesome. Uh, we issued them uniforms. And we they were issued the weapons, and we spent a day out uh, firing weapons with them. And the day that they came to do a uniform inspection, there was a there was a female Afghan general. She's got her own story. It would be a completely separate show. It'd be great if you could if you could talk with her. Seen as a figurehead only because she had to pretend she was a boy up until the age of twelve, mm. and she jumped out of airplanes. And so the Afghan army air force recognized her as a leader a figurehead only but she was the person that was going to come out and inspect these women and the day that they got out there for the inspection first lieutenant straub and i looked at one another and i said didn't we issue them pants and she said yes yes we did i said because they're wearing skirts so we had to create a paradigm shift for ourselves because we issued them pants but these women took the seams out of the pants and sewed them together because they felt more comfortable in skirts. So I had a platoon of females in the prone position in their skirts, some with with heels, the boots they wear on, firing their AK-47s. And you know what? Did you take any pictures? Do you have pictures? I have pictures, yes. If there were a way, I'm happy. I'm happy to share those with you, and I can do that. It was an amazing experience. And I'll tell you this about Afghans. They're very prideful people, no matter what their passion. And these women were no different. And so when they got their uniforms on, they, they did the best they could at making them look great, to include, in fact, any part of their face that maybe did show were refined. They they came out there and, you know, not not gaudily, but if that's even a word, but they came out finished and polished looking and with pride because these women, remember, many of them lost their husbands, you know, through the Muharim. And and they they had that same passion times you, you name the number. So it was good to work with them. And it was a great, great joy. There's a Tim King was um, a reporter out of Salem, Winston, and he covered this story. I'll have to send you the link, but I could not be interviewed without crying with pride. I'll Mm. tell you that right now. Well, thanks for sharing that story. You know, so you hit upon a couple of things. Um, 
One of them is working magic, civilians, contractors, uh, the locals, if you want to call them locals, uh, the military, all branches, and the magic. And then you hit upon leadership. And when you get right down to it, Commander, it's about the leadership. And, yes. and and that task that you took on, I mean, I, I would have blown me away to see all these ladies come out with skirts on and camo skirts, you know, and and then to figure that all out. But, you know, but it really I think that in any organization, you know, again, military works in chaos and tries to create something out of it. But we also operate in chaos in our own spheres of influence and in business in the civilian world. So leadership. Right. Not, not to throw you off. Tell me a little bit about. The commander's insights on leadership. Well, I tell you, the best leader is a follower. And and I've known that since since my, well, uh, I wouldn't say I practiced it, practiced, practiced it too much with my siblings. Uh, but once you get into an academic environment, you, you learn that I have to follow in order to lead. I have to learn in order to do. So so that's my number one philosophy is I have to be, and it really goes back to um, my faith. And you have to have a degree of servitude, right? In order to, to lead others to their faith and find help them find their faith. So, so that's, that's, that sums up my philosophy as far as leadership goes. And then the responsibility that we have as leaders to create other leaders. I can name right now, and we all should be able to name at least five people that we are talking to, that we're mentoring. And I'm not talking about, you know, every single day we talk to them, nor am I talking about just once a year. I'm talking about, do you have your fingers on the pulse of five individuals who you are helping develop them in some way? That That's my goal. So I can't lead unless I'm a servant, even to those people who are not yet leaders, but because they will be. And uh, I've got uh, <laughs> Kay- Kaylee Tangen. So she just graduated uh, from her nursing program this past weekend. She's the daughter of Kat and Perry Tangen, who I mentioned I served with in Afghanistan. Right. I had the privilege of working with her and influencing her helping her, you know, prepare a packet for the Navy. We worked on this for, for about two or three years. And she called me, we, we, I was coaching her through the, the MEPS thing. And we came up with something while she was at MEPS. She goes, you know, I don't know, this is my second time over here. And, you know, a l- little nervous, but only because she had respect, you know, she had uh, parents who had served and, and she was ready to serve as a Navy nurse. And I told her, and, and, and it was easy for, for me to, to remember to give her something she could walk away with and said, you know, Kaylee, you need to be the cream of the crop of Gen Pop. So whatever crowd you find yourself in, you be the cream of the crop of Gen Pop. And you make sure that you come out of there today as a Navy nurse somehow or a candidate for the nurse program. So I'm happy to pass along to you that she had her pinning. As a Navy nurse, she graduated, and uh, I'm not sure when her training date is, but I'll tell you this. It sure feels good knowing that I got somebody with that kind of desire coming into our Navy as a nurse behind me and on the front lines, wherever those lines are. And that's something I want to hit on, too. You know, even the folks, you know, not even, but especially Vietnam. You know, the whole ink blot theory where we're influencing people and even then we are saving lives and, you know, winning hearts and doing all those things that we're continuing to try to do today. And to a degree, we are successful. It's a kaleidoscope. There are no front lines. Last I saw, we're not going to to march with swords or rifles as they did during the Civil War on the battlefield. It's everywhere. And then, oh, by the way, let's not discount the potential for infiltration. Um, is that called well, asymmetrical warfare? Is there a name? Yes. There's a scientific name for that. Yes. And now, now enter in, and this is a different show. Now enter in that we have kinetic, we have non-kinetic, and now we have this thing that's in the air, and I'm not referring to the new space command, though. I'll give a nod to them. No, I hear you. We have this thing now that is cyber. So we have to consider, as we always have, are known unknowns when it comes to war. And part of that is acknowledging that there are no front lines. And I would submit to you, having had a vehicle-borne IED go off 300 yards from my living quarters in Afghanistan and sitting in the middle of 
of protective barriers, hoping that one of the rockets didn't come our way that we could hear. I'll tell you what, there may not have been somebody that said, yeah, we're going to give her, you know, a, a, a combat MOS. I, I would like that person to stand in front of me and explain to me, okay, please help me understand what was that exactly? Because I would submit to you, that's the front line. Yes, so, it, yes, it is. I'm glad you pointed that out. My my second sister's oldest son is a captain in the U.S. Army in cyber, stationed at a base in Georgia, and right. uh, and same exact thing. You know, he's a young. He just had a second child. Well, he didn't. His wife did. But um, yes, exactly. And and you're right. There's so many different fronts. It is all around, and every single part of that is important. That's great yes. that you pointed that out. Yes. So the space that fills between the kinetic and non-kinetic combat and non-combat is our cyber. And uh, we, we, you know, I, I always when I'm talking with young people, I try and encourage them to go down the path of the training that's available uh, for that cyberspace, because it's definitely one that as we see on a daily basis and, you know, it, you see it in the news, it's all open source um, that we have uh, we have the enemy that is crawling in our spaces that we can't see. And you talk about hearts and minds, and it is. It's infiltration. And, you know, if you kind of have a mind for those kinds of things, you can actually see things yourself, things that are going on. And, you know, it's interesting because now in the 21st century, with all this technological advancement, uh, it can become very interesting here in the next several years. Um you know, when you, so that deployment, you finished the deployment, I'm sure you did it high speed. Was Afghanistan a better place when you yes. left it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a better place than it was yesterday. Absolutely. Because every, I believe every society uh, wants to move forward. Now you can have your doubters and, 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 and I, I, I mean, I'm a realist. Obviously, you know, there's a, there's a lot of corruption, um, but there's a lot of people that want to do good for all the right reason. And, and will it be me to degradate their efforts by saying, no, there's not been any progress. There's, there's progress on a daily basis, you know, and I, and I, fortunately I got to be a part of that and, and I'm, I'm happy about that. And, you know, one of my greatest, um, opportunities while I was over there was, uh, I got to uh, go out and be become a member of the Order of St. Barbara. For those listening, it's it's really an, an artillery thing. Uh, a rather um, now, you know, there are few members, but I am the only Navy female that is part of the Order of St. Barbara. And that was only possible because I was invited amongst NATO forces. So not just U.S., not just our, our our joint forces, but NATO forces to come out and fire D-30 howitzers in the middle of the Afghan mountains and then drink that grog. So it's not just us, as we know, it's other countries. And, you know, I, I may be a little Pollyanna about this, and, and that's okay, because I think we need it. Um, why in the world would I would I try to motivate people to go and do what I did and and think in the back of my head we're not making a difference so i would say the answer to your question is simply yes it's a better place awesome well thank you for that answer you know and i know that you're you just recently got promoted we talked about it at the outset so congratulations on that so i know you've still got your mindset on more goals where do you see yourself there's a few questions i'm going to ask you here but where do you see yourself in five years what would you like to do what would you like that legacy to be well, I'd certainly like to be an admiral because if I don't have that motivation, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. That's kind of my philosophy. You know, if you don't have I, I was asked the other day, um, well, what job are you taking next? So I am leaving uh, Marine Forces Central Command where I've absolutely enjoyed my time and experiences there. Um, I asked for that billet because I thought, OK, if I wanted to go somewhere where the action was, where would I go? Well, definitely Marines. And um, th this is my opinion. So others will have uh, 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 other thoughts about that. And then definitely Central Command. Take take me take me back there. And um, so I've enjoyed those experiences. Uh, I got to I had the opportunity to accomplish grand things. Uh, but I can tell you that it wasn't me personally that accomplished those. Uh, we worked with Jordan 
And so um, I got to see the fruits of labor that Jordan and the United States put into their increased readiness for the turmoil that happens in their part of the world. Uh, I'm going to be leaving Marine Forces Central Command to report to Navy Region Southeast, where I will be the um, manager for global health. And that is going to encompass uh, responsibilities of a liaison between each one of the embassies in Central and South America and the efforts that we put forth to increase capability and capacity in Central and South America. That's great work. And uh, Admiral, that would be uh, that would be pretty cool. I know you're going to get there. You know, what does freedom mean to you? And, And does everybody in America have equal access to it? Um, well, that's interesting you asked that question because I look at that from the lens of a global health professional and I could say to the degree that in within our own borders in the United States that there is access to programs that do exist to help, um, we all have the opportunity to take advantage of freedom. Um, I think that there are certain things on an individual basis that exempt some people from the ability to do that. And that gets into some of the behavioral health issues that that people experience. And I'm not a judge of any other one individual. Um, but your your question simply is, do, does everyone have uh, the same opportunities? And, and I, I say the answer is yes. And if you're geographically challenged to do that, you know, we have places within our own borders that are like third world countries and not two miles away you know, they have all the programs available to them. It's just a matter of one education, because some people in those locations, again, within the United States, um, are not educated on what opportunities are available to them. You know, I I grew up, I didn't know that we uh, maybe didn't have as, as much as other people, because that wasn't where wealth came from in my family. But at a time and place, I do recall, you know, my family using food stamps. And and we came out of that. We were fortunate. And I'll submit to you that to this day, um, each each person, each sibling in my family um, has well exceeded the need to, to rely on that kind of public program. Are there folks that abuse that? Sure. What can we do about that? I'm, I'm certain there are solutions out there. But yes, uh, we all have the advantage of of freedom in this country. And it's not just freedom to attain certain things or gain material things, but it's our freedom to practice religion. It's our freedom to speak uh, our opinions, whatever the judgment of those, you know, may be from other people, our, our freedom to carry, to purchase weapons. Um, you know, there are, there are things that, that uh, in our society where they cause harmful situations, and and I am sad to say that that we've seen that uh, way too much. But do I have the freedom to go out and fire a weapon? I, I absolutely do, and that will continue to burn the embers uh, within me to continue to fight for those freedoms. Thank you for that. You know, you definitely, you know, my drill sergeant was right. You know, listening uh, to the conversation and speaking with you today, Commander. You know, the U.S. Navy continues to put some of the finest people on the face of the planet in their ranks and uh i can sleep better at night knowing that you know commanders like you operate in those circles um if you you know part of the reason for the show is to kind of uh, not even kind of we want to change any kind of stereotyping of veterans you know what can you what would you like the civilian population to know about the veterans especially combat veterans who come home and transition back to the world after being in such uh, chaotic environments, what would you like them to know? Poignantly, I'd like to remind both active duty, our reservists and our civilians that truly we're civilians. We are civilians. That's where we started from. We all start from being a civilian, right? So we're already part of the civilian group. And I think that to the degree that we can create, again, a paradigm shift and help uh, our veterans uh, that are transitioning and help our active duty uh, understand, you know, we're all one part of this great big melting pot. Um, I have talked to numerous civilians that say, thank you for your service. I I wish I had gotten the opportunity to serve. And then after that, a story follows about why they didn't get the opportunity to serve. And I always say, thank you, because I'm having the time of my life and I'm happy to do this. And I'll tell you, it always makes my heart heavy when I hear that they did not get a chance to serve. 
what 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 a gracious opportunity so that keeps me centered and balanced um but the, the bumper sticker of this is that we are civilians. We are, we just leave for a little while. We go do that thing and we come home and we're, we come back to our civilian family. And I can tell you too, that civilians appreciate that we identify that way. There are too many times that I think, um, we create this separation. And though there are things that happen that create for us unique experiences, you know, before the show got started, we talked about first responders and our teachers and people that are truly like on the front lines every day. I can tell you that it probably takes a little bit less courage for me to go through many barriers at MacDill Air Force Base to get to my desk with no windows than it does for a third grade teacher to return to the classroom after one of these devastating shootings. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that the more that we acknowledge that the military veterans are a subset of, of the society and we're really going back to where we came from. Um, that to me is impressionable. The other thing that we talked about, I feel like is important to mention is that Sometimes I can tell you, yeah, I, I'm, I'm humbled by the, the number of people that say thank you, thank you. You know, a lot of times uh, you walk through the airport, especially in Atlanta um, and Tampa. You know, there's there's <laughs> oh not my an, gosh, yeah, yeah, there's not an airport that I personally have been to that did not have a sign that said "Welcome Home Troops." I I, I got to tell you, we live in a great country that that that's very thankful for the people that do serve. And and I will tell you this as well, General Langley. This past weekend during Reads Across America gave an excellent talk. Now, I'm not saying that because he's chief of plans over at the J5 at CENTCOM. And, and, you know, ultimately my work goes to him. But I will tell you, he said something phenomenal. When we as active duty military members are thanked for our service, he gave us that instruction to thank you very much. Please thank a Korean vet. Please thank a Vietnam vet. And that's the way I feel. The only reason I am where I am today is because somebody before me did their job in the Korean War, in the Vietnam War, and the notable wars wars before that. So if we have veterans out there who have been in the Korean War, World War II, uh, Vietnam, my hat and my heart to them because that's really where the credit goes. Well, thank you for pointing that out. That's a great point by the general. Um you know, I know one of your passions, and you've alluded to it, is um, mentoring. And I know also, you know, you're in global health. We understand that. But I also know that you have some expertise in traumatic brain injury. And we had talked off uh, the mic about some of the people that you've been able to mentor and have been able to save uh, from some dark places. And, you know, if there's a, a, a young lady or young man out there that is in, in that dark place and maybe is suffering from TBI, what advice can you give them? Well, recently I've put effort toward um, how can we prevent suicide? Okay. And the number one way that we can do that is connectedness. All right. So, so, you know, oftentimes we hear about, oh, social media, not a good thing. You're spending too much time on your phone, what have you. For those listening that may be in a not good place, I would say listening to to this uh, radio uh, show, uh, listening to friends, family, and reaching out, connecting with people, connecting with programs, whether it's part of your your phone or not, whether whether you feel like uh, you, you are not alone every single day. All of us goes through some kind of life obstacle that makes us think that, wow, this is a bad day. And I would challenge folks to think, you know, it's a bad minute. It's a bad 10 minutes. It's a bad hour. It's a bad day. But it is not a bad life. And the more that, that we can stay connected to one another, that truly is the secret to success. Talk to people, help them understand they're not alone. That, that's, that's the number one way I feel like we can reach people. And then listen. You know, I, I just reminded the Navy cadets the other day that we have one mouth and two ears. And the ratio was, was figured out by a genius that used that algorithm 
that that equates to we need to listen more than we talk. And so just connectedness, be connected, call somebody, say something. Um, these the 877 numbers, the, you know, 800 numbers. I applaud those programs. Um, it is a way that our society tries to reach out and provide aid, assistance, help to individuals. But, you know, I, I go through my day and I assume in my mind that that other people may not be having as good a day as I. And, and I challenge all of us, myself most notably, when you say, hi, how's your day? If someone doesn't answer the question, how's your day? Say it again. How is your day? And, and, and converse with people. That's a great point. And you know, I was, uh, I had dinner up in Ybor city with a Marine Colonel friend and uh, he had just returned from a funeral of a general who had committed suicide. And my point is it happens to everybody. We're all human. And, uh, he was really, obviously upset because he had served with this general in theater and uh we talked about that and the 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 importance what you pointed out here commander about the importance of reaching out to each other and communication and keeping it open um yeah we're losing a lot of good people and there's a lot of good people out there that might be considering that and and we just like the commander says here reach out talk communicate so just today, you know, I received a link uh, from a friend of mine who's always checking on me when I when I have to deploy a couple of things. Number one, a deployment isn't a year anymore. A deployment isn't six weeks anymore. A deployment, they send us for these temporary active duties that are up to four weeks. That's deployed. If you're receiving combat pay while you're gone from your home, that is a deployment. That is the opportunity for something not good to happen. And so we've got to redefine how we view deployments. When I saw this link, you know, we had a fairly high profile suicide occur uh, a couple of weeks ago, followed by another suicide in theater, followed by another suicide, you know, in the news last last mm. Monday. So since last Monday on December 10th, when this Marine took his life in in Tampa, we've had 396 other suicides. 396 since that day. That's a sobering, very sobering. And these are, you know, fellow humans. Yes, yes. So so any effort that any individual puts forth to connect to other humans, however you do it, the vehicle, the medium can be the phone. It can be a phone call, um, a text, anything. Just connect with people. Thank you for that. You know, so, you know, you have... You've done something new for us here on Straight Out of Combat Radio. The first active duty uh, service member to be part of what we're doing and uh, and a Navy commander to boot. Uh, really honored and humbled to have you here. Finally, we've been talking about it for a while. You know, we have the Christmas holiday coming up. We want to wish Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Happy Hanukkah, whatever your practice is. And uh, just want to congratulate you again. And thank you very much for being here. And as you know, soon to be admiral maybe who knows but uh you know give us a parting shot here commander um jeanette erin sebia uh give us a parting shot here so the parting shot would be that you know remember that we're we're all serving our country in some way whether it's a first responder a teacher a military member a contractor a civilian we're, we're all doing some type of service and do remember that veterans and military members wish to uh, feel that sense of gratitude toward society and, and the opportunity to thank other people for what they're doing at home. Remember, when we deploy, our kids still go to school, right? And I can't tell you the number of times I've received a recording on my cell phone personally that said Dixon High School, where my, you know, where my daughter is, um, they, there's a lockdown today or there's a practice today for that. And you feel somewhat at times defeated by here I am going to another country and my own family's not even safe within the walls of the place that it is the right to earn an education. Um, so to to give you a little bit of a, um, a, a parting here, I want to say that I would encourage military members especially to get involved with civilian organizations 
that allow the, the time and opportunity for you to feel a part of the community. The two organizations that I have uh, uh, solicited to do that in are Remember, Honor, Support. Joe Brower over in St. Petersburg is doing a great work when she memorializes those responders that responded on 9-11. And so to have an opportunity to to thank her for what she's doing personally, and then to also be a part of expressing that gratitude is important. And uh, that's why I, where I'll mention that um, we have an opportunity to express our gratitude through organizations such as the Random Acts of uh, Gratitude System, Rags to Wishes, where there are initiatives for us as military members to, to thank other military members, to, to, to thank those Korean and Vietnam vets and World War II vets in some way, um, as well as to express our gratitude toward civilians and, and say thank you. So um, we've, got, we've got a program for that. The ways in which uh, that can be done can be provided to you in narrative format, maybe on a link or something like that. But that's really the secret to success is feel a part of the community that you're involved in, link up with folks and, and look for opportunities to express gratitude for what we know each of us as military members currently, National Guard and veterans. Um, we, we, we need the opportunity to say thank you to it. And that warms our hearts. Oh, great. You know, that's actually how you and I met with the Gratitude Professor Edward Pereira, the Rags, yes. the Wishes campaign that he's doing, doing a great job. If somebody wants to make contact with you, now I know you're busy, you're a commander, I get that. How can they contact you? Is there a way they can? Oh, absolutely. We have uh, multiple means of uh, contact. I do. I'm, of course, you know, I've got my email, JeanetteAaronCV at gmail.com. My DOD email changes. So again, I can provide that all, all that to you in a narrative format. And then we have the gratitudeprofessor.org, where as a board member, I work with uh, Ed, who's doing a great job, as you said, just a notable organization out there making changes. I also want to thank Tampa Bay Lightning, who recently sponsored a couple of programs where we can uh, market the idea of saying thank you. What great support from Tampa. The Buccaneers do a great job of recognizing our military families. I cannot say enough thank yous to the city of Tampa and its professional sports for welcoming their military, the military families into their communities and allowing us the opportunity to participate. And to the gratitude professor whose philosophy it is to do just this, to say thank you. Well, thank you for pointing all of those wonderful people and organizations out. And, and thank you for being you and for humbling me and honoring me with your time today on Straight Out of Combat Radio. I really look forward to uh, carrying a conversation. And uh, I know we're talking about doing some things with Harley Davidson motorcycles. And uh, it, we're going to have a lot of fun. And uh, all I can say, Commander, is keep up the great work, keep driving on, and uh, I know that your daughters are proud of you, just like I am. Thank you. And uh, fair winds and following season, that includes getting a little wind therapy. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. God bless. You too. Thank you. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. <laughs> <laughs>